Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Our topic today is the effect that cutbacks in the State Department's budget have, have on U.S. foreign policy, which is something no one ever brings up. Think about it. The State Department implements policies of the President and the Congress. Its work with other countries affects every area of business, every, every area of American life, business, national security, you name it, and it's dangerous in today's challenging global environment. Through instant word by Twitter and Facebook, trouble pops up at the speed of light, mind-blowing. To help us make sense of this crazy world, our guest today, a distinguished scholar of U.S. foreign policy and grand strategy, will analyze our subject and its wider effects. <clears throat> Some of you will recognize him from TV and other media. He is Dr. Charles Kupchin, Professor of International Affairs in the School of Foreign Service of Georgetown University, and also Shepherdson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the first Clinton administration. Before joining the NSC, he worked on the policy planning staff of the State Department. Prior to government service, he was an assistant professor of politics at Princeton University. Dr. Kupchin is the author of numerous articles on international and strategic affairs and the author of nine books. And his recent one from 2012 is available outside for your purchase. A Harvard undergraduate, his master's and doctorate are from Oxford University. He has served as visiting scholar at Harvard, Columbia University, and Institutes for International Strategic Studies in London, Paris, and Tokyo. In 2006-07, he was the Henry Kissinger Scholar at the Library of Congress and a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. He lives with his wife, Sema, in Washington, where they have a new little daughter, just six weeks old, which accounts for his perpetual smile these days. <laughs> Please join me in a big Texas welcome to our guest. Thank you very much, Mal, for the, uh, the warm introduction. It's nice to see you and, and Jim and other uh, members of the AJC and the World Affairs Council. As, as Jim mentioned, this is my, my third visit to this, uh, to this group. Uh, you all are clearly gluttons for punishment, uh, as I guess I am, but uh, it really is a pleasure to be back. Uh, and since I do have a a six-week-old daughter at home. This is a, a wonderful chance to get some sleep. Uh, I think I got more sleep in the past two nights than in the past six weeks. So if I could come back next week, uh, that would be great. <laughs> Just don't tell my wife. The subject that I will speak about today is cutbacks in 
the State Department budget, which is a sort of proxy for something bigger that I think uh, we need to address as Americans who, who are concerned about the role that our country plays in world affairs. And that is that I, I think we are, are passing through a historical intersection in American politics, uh, but also in global politics. And so I want to use this question of, of decreasing resources for foreign policy to ask a, a, a bigger question, and that is, what will America's role in the world be under conditions of fiscal austerity? How will the country moving forward reclaim a balance between its resources and its commitments, a balance that now seems to have been lost, in part because we are spending more than we can afford to spend, not just on foreign policy, on defense, the State Department foreign assistance, but across the board. And at the same time that we seem to be in a new era at home, we are in a new era abroad. And that's because really for the first time in, in 200 years, the Western world of which we are a card-carrying member is losing its material and its ideological primacy. The globalized world in which we live was born after the Napoleonic Wars, which ended in 1815, and that's when Europe found a new peace with the defeat of Napoleon. The Industrial Revolution was in full swing, and Europe's colonial powers spread broadly around the world. 90% of the world's landmass by the end of the 19th century was either a European colony or a former European colony like us. And then in the middle of the 20th century, we sort of took over from Europe the mantle of global leadership, and we have more or less been running the shots since 1941. And so that period of 1815 to, to 2012 does really represent a remarkable period in international history in which a broad distribution of power in the world, the, the, the Europeans, the Ottomans, the Qing, the Indians, the Japanese, all of that shifted by 1815 and the West, North America and Europe together, pulled ahead of the rest and we have stayed ahead of the rest ever since. But what seems to be happening now is that that long historical period is coming to an end. We used to represent 75% of the world's product, we meaning the West. We now represent about 50%. We will soon represent about 40%. In other words, the trend lines are clearly pointing towards a world where power is much more equally distributed than it has been since the 18th century. Moreover, we are moving to a world that for the first time in history will have a multipolar distribution of power, but be globalized and interdependent. And that's new in the sense that the last time we had a broad multipolar distribution of power, the centers of power had different views about commerce, they had different views about governance, but they didn't interact with each other. And so the way that the Chinese ran the world, the way that the Ottomans ran the world, the way that the Holy Roman Emperor ran his affairs, it didn't matter that they didn't agree on anything because they never met each other. 
Maybe once in a while a ship would go from Ottoman lands into the Indian sphere of influence, or a trade mission would go from Japan to China. But they were largely compartmentalized spheres. Now we are all smushed together. What happens in Beijing matters for what happens in Washington, which affects Dallas, which affects Brasilia, which affects New Delhi. And therefore, that this world that we're moving into, a world where we are smushed together, but in which the West is no longer calling the shots, is a brave new world. It is one in which we have to figure out how to build a new brand of global governance in which the United States and its European partners represent only one of multiple centers of power and only one of multiple versions of modernity. And so what I want to do in the next 20 minutes or so is, is, is put some flesh on those bones, first talk a little bit about what's happening here in the United States, and then talk about what's happening beyond our borders to reinforce this sense that we are moving into a new historical age. And then I'll end with some thoughts on what we can do about it. After the end of the Cold War, the United States began to reduce its resources and its attention when it came to the exercise of foreign policy, and that's because we could. Our main competitor imploded, literally disappeared off the face of the earth. There was no one to stand up to American power, and we therefore began to reduce the defense budget and to reduce the budget of our other institutions that guide our foreign policy. We did it, as I said, because we could, the peace dividend. Then we get to 9-11, suddenly we are hit hard, and we reverse this trend of declining resources to defense and foreign policy, and we spent the last decade effectively writing blank checks. Whatever the Pentagon wanted, the Pentagon got. Whatever the State Department wanted, the State Department got. We were in the midst of building an embassy in Baghdad that was the size of a small city. I think it was a, there were something like 12,000 people that were going to work in this one embassy in Baghdad. Well, that period has come to a screeching halt. Uh, and that's because we don't have the money to continue to write blank checks for the embassy in Baghdad or for 11 or 12 carrier task forces or for doing whatever the Pentagon would ask. And that's simply because we now have a fiscal crisis of a sort that we have never had as modern America. And that's why we have already cut $500 billion from the defense budget and why another $500 billion is now on the chopping block, sequestered as a consequence of the inability of Republicans and Democrats to agree last year on a way to reduce the debt and the, and the deficit. Funding for the State Department has fallen by $6 billion over the last year. $2 billion of that is foreign assistance, and the rest is operations. The military is in the process of leaving Iraq and Afghanistan. That will save us somewhere between $1 and $200 billion, but we will nonetheless see our force structure go down. 
probably about by 100,000. Our troops in Europe used to be about 100,000. They will soon be 30,000. We talk about a pivot to Asia, but how many troops have we actually sent to Asia? 3,000. So we are going through a serious retrenchment in our resources and in our manpower. And I would also say we are going through a retrenchment politically and psychologically, and that the American people are tired of Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly because they are inconclusive wars. They didn't turn out exactly as we had hoped. We are out of Iraq. We are in the midst of getting out of Afghanistan. My guess is in the next month's NATO summit in Chicago, we will actually see the timetable pick up. And that's because the Australians have said they're leaving. Hollande, who is likely to win the presidency in France on May 6th, has said he wants troops out of Afghanistan this year. And given the deteriorating security situation there, my guess is when Obama sits down with his counterparts, he's going to talk about speeding up this process. Not leaving, but putting our troops in safer places and spending much more time training and much less time running after the Taliban. Part of the retrenchment, as I mentioned, is the sense of the need to husband resources. But I think that is also manifesting itself in the positions that our political parties are taking. And I think it's safe to say that the emergence of the Tea Party, for example, and the Republican Party really does present a, a dramatically new political landscape in as much as if there is a, a foreign policy to, the, to that wing, it really harkens back to a traditional Republican neo-isolationism, in some ways drawing on the libertarian tradition that holds that adventure abroad comes at the expense of liberty and prosperity at home. And that wing of the Republican Party is in many respects allying with a wing in the Democratic Party that is uncomfortable with the assertive use of American power. And so you have a strange alliance between Democrats on the far left and Republicans that are more to the right coming together and saying, hey, let's spend more time tending our garden and much less time fixing other people's problems. Public opinion polls show that about 50% of the American public believes that the United States should now focus on the home front and stay out of the affairs of others. It's the highest recorded yes response to this question in polling data in history, much higher than the 34% that said yes to this question after the Vietnam War. So that suggests that public, uh, that public attitudes are really moving toward uh, a, a more constrained, a more inward-looking brand of American internationalism. And so it's not just about the budget. It is also about the public's appetite for engaging in the kind of internationalism that the United States has pursued ho historically and certainly over the last decade. The other question that I, I think needs to be addressed is, are we going to have the political wherewithal to make these adjustments? 
is this country sufficiently solvent politically to put its house in order and to engage in a smart, paced retrenchment in which we keep our forces and our fingers on the key issues and try to move away from what one could call wars of choice. And I think that the answer to that question is we don't know. And that's because right now we are going through a period of political dysfunction in the country which I think most of us could never have imagined. And that is because in many respects Republicans and Democrats are sufficiently far apart on the major issues of the day that it has proved remarkably difficult to forge a consensus on foreign policy, on the defense budget, on how to fix our ailing domestic economy. And I think that we have, to some extent, a pretty uh, uh, vicious chicken and egg problem here in the following sense, that the polarization that we are experiencing politically has deep economic roots. I think it has a lot to do with globalization and the degree to which income inequality in the country is growing and our middle classes are seeing their jobs disappear, their homes disappear, and their incomes decline. There was an interesting article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal today. For the first time in modern American history, our children will have less education than us. Right? And that is a sign of a, a decline in the upward mobility of a broad cross-section of the American population. And it's a worrisome development. But to fix those kinds of problems, to get our economy growing again, to train American workers to be competitive in a world where they're up against the Chinese and the Indonesians and the Malaysians, we need good politics. We need Washington to mine the store. And the problem is how to, how to put that equation together. We need the economy to restore solvent politics, but we need good politics to solve the economic problems and to bring the debt under control and to figure out how to be competitive in the 21st century. I think we will do it because I have faith that the United States is a remarkably resilient country, but I have to say that I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I do not yet see in Washington a group of reasonable people coming together and saying, here's the problem, here's the solution, let's get from A to Z. And I want to stress that it is not because the problems themselves are insoluble. They are soluble. And my guess is if those doors back there got barricaded right now and we were told that we couldn't leave the, this room until we came up with a reasonable solution to the main problems on the agenda, my guess is we'd be out of here in 12 hours. And that's because reasonable people can agree that we need some kind of mix of cuts in spending, increases in revenue, and smart investment to make our economy grow again. And even if you don't agree with that, you understand that the functioning of democracy is about compromise. So even if you don't believe that we need increases in revenue, you think we should just spend uh, a cut, cut, and I believe we need revenue, we at least should say, well then, let's make a deal. I'll give you some spending cuts, you give me a little revenue, let's go have a beer. Right? That's what reasonable people do. That's how liberal democracy functions. 
That's not what's happening in Washington. And I think ultimately our strength abroad depends upon our strength at home. Priority number one is restoring the health of our political system. Let me now pan out to the rest of the world and talk a little bit about why our inability to behave like adults at home comes at a particularly inopportune moment. I think that we are on the cusp of what I would call a global turn. And by that I mean the world's center of gravity is shifting. As I said in my opening remarks, that happened about 400 years ago when power was broadly distributed around the world and then by the 19th century, one part of the world, first Northwestern Europe and then us, North America, pulled ahead of everyone else and we stayed ahead for the next few hundred years. But what's happening now is the pendulum is swinging again. Power is shifting away from the Atlantic community to China, to Brazil, to India, to Indonesia, to Turkey. But I would argue that we're not going to see an Asian century or a Chinese century or an Indian century. It will be no one century. And that's because power is distributing everywhere and therefore nowhere. And that's why I think we will be in what I would call no one's world, a world in which the United States does fine, we ret retain number one status, at least for the next few decades, militarily, but numbers two, three, four, and five close the gap week by week. And let me just offer a few pieces of data. This is all according to either the World Bank or Goldman Sachs, both of which are good at cranking numbers. One, by 2025, we will live in a three-currency world, the dollar, the euro, and the renminbi. That's the World Bank. Two, by 2032, the collective wealth of the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, will equal the collective wealth of today's G7, the advanced industrialized nations. China will surpass the United States in terms of aggregate wealth in 2027, and it will then steadily pull ahead. And by 2040, the Chinese economy will be roughly twice the size of the American economy. That is aggregate wealth. That is not per capita GDP. We will stay ahead. Today, the five most wealthy countries in the world are all Western nations, with one exception, China. China comes in at number two. In 30 to 40 years, the top five will have only one Western country in the mix, and that's us. And every other country will come from what is today, every other top five country will come from what is today, the developing world. So that is a fundamental change in the distribution of power. As I said, we used to represent 75% of GDP, we're down to 50, and the real losers in this game are Japan and the EU, the Europeans. We're going to hold steady at around 20 to 25 percent of global GDP. Japan is falling off the face of the earth. The European Union might recover, might not. We can talk a little bit about that later. 
But as I was talking with, with some others earlier, the, the first time I was here 10 years ago, I was much more bullish about Europe because I thought it was engaging in a process of political union and that Europe would project its voice globally in a manner commensurate with its collective will and wealth. Not Germany alone, France alone, Italy alone, but Europe. That doesn't seem to be happening. The euro might survive, but it is today hard to be confident that Europe is going to cohere sufficiently as a collective entity to hold its own against countries as big as China, the United States, or India. The other issue that I think is, is, is critical for us to, to debate is less the question of the distribution of material power and more the issue of ideological change. And I was talking with, with Ray about this at lunch because I think the dominant view in Washington today is that this reshuffling of the global pecking order is inevitable. Some people would say, Balderdash. You may be familiar with Bob Kagan. He just published a book, said, no, 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 we're fine. Don't worry about it. Right? Go back to your TV show. <laughs> but I would say that most analysts who are dealing with this issue understand that we are entering a period of dramatic change in the distribution of power and that that's unstoppable. It won't necessarily happen exactly as Goldman Sachs and the World Bank predict. China might grow slower. China might grow faster. India might come on stronger than we inspect. But we know that the broad picture is one in which global wealth is moving from our part of the world to their part of the world. That's what's happened throughout history. That's what will happen again. I think the interesting question is what about ideology. What about the world that we have built? And I think the dominant view in Washington is that, yes, our dominating position may diminish. We will cut our defense budget. We will close or shrink the embassy in Baghdad because we have to. But ultimately, Baghdadis, Iranians, Chinese, Indonesians, Indians, they will slip into our harbor. They will take the berth that we have assigned them. The world that Europeans and Americans built together, liberal democracy, market capitalism, secular nationalism, this world will universalize. And it doesn't really matter that power is diffusing from here to there if ultimately they want to look like us and play by our rules. I think that view of the world is naive. I think that the path to modernity that is being followed in the Middle East, in China, in India, is not our path. It is their own path. And it will lead to a view about commerce and governance and society and state that is different from ours. And they will not quietly slip into our harbor. They will say, we want our own harbor. We would like to revisit the question of how we define legitimacy, sovereignty, markets. And let me just give you a few quick examples of the kinds of arguments that I make in, in the book that I just published to reinforce this perspective. The rise of the West was very much about the rise of the middle class. 
the bourgeoisie that merged in early modern Europe and pushed back against the absolutist state, the monarchs, the nobility, and the Catholic Church. The middle class was the vanguard for the Reformation. The middle class was the vanguard for constitutional democracy, constitutional monarchy, and ultimately for the democratic revolution. China's middle class is not at the vanguard of change. When Deng Xiaoping began to privatize the Chinese economy after 1979, they had a huge debate in the Communist Party about whether businessmen could join the party, which at that point was open only to peasants and soldiers. Eventually they said, yes, we would welcome businessmen. And from that time on, the Communist Chinese, the, the CCP, and the middle class have grown together. Most Chinese businessmen support one-party rule. Most members of the Chinese middle class are not budding Democrats. Yes, you have dissidents. Yes, you have human rights lawyers. But they are not pushing <clears throat> the country in the direction of Western liberal politics. And I would point out that according to a recent Pew poll, when asked, do you believe that your country is headed in the right direction, 83% of China's population said yes. Here you ask that question, about 20% say yes. That does not strike me as a country that is about to throw in the towel and try a dramatically new system. In the Middle East, many people look at what's happening in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Syria, and they say, aha, the Arab Spring, the Middle East is finally breaking America's way. Liberal democracy and Islam are compatible after all. Not so fast. I think what we will see in the Middle East is the spread of participatory democracy, but the brand of modernity that emerges in the wake of that spread will bear little resemblance to our brand of modernity. And that's because we emerged as modern industrial societies after the Reformation, after the church had been pushed out of political life. In the Middle East, there is no distinction between the sacred and the secular. The pope never fought with the emperor because there was never a pope and an emperor. Secular power and religious power were merged in the person of the caliph. And it's for this reason, this intimate connection between religion and political life, that in every country in the modern Middle East that has had an election, the political Islamists have won. Egypt, Tunisia, Iran, Turkey, Lebanon, Iraq, Palestinian Authority, you name it, ballot box, political Islam has been the beneficiary. And Turkey, I think, is in many respects a defining case because Turkey was long held out as the Western model, secularity. But the wealthier Turkey has gotten, the bigger its middle class has grown, the more powerful the AKP, the main ruling party, has become, and they are largely adhering to a pro-Islamist agenda. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I think what the United States should be doing now is tripping over itself to be nice to the Muslim Brotherhood. Why? Because the Muslim Brotherhood is going to run the show for years to come. We might not like it, but we had better get used to it. Look at the results 
of the recent parliamentary elections in Egypt. Finally, quick word on India and Brazil, which are secular democracies, and many expect them to thereby always be on our side, to slip into the Western order and defend it. I think Brazil and India are taking their own paths. They are emerging as liberal democracies at a time at which they are primarily urban and rural poor, not middle-class societies. And that has led to a left-wing populism that is pushing them in their own orbit. And I would point out that those two countries, India and Brazil, vote with the United States and the United Nations less than 25% of the time. And India is supposedly our new strategic partner, but on just about every issue other than hedging against China, they don't agree with us. Afghanistan, Pakistan, trade, environment, and most importantly, Iran. We are trying to strangle Iran to stop its nuclear weapons program. New Delhi just dispatched a commercial delegation to, uh, 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 to Tehran to deepen commercial integration. That does not sound to me like a country that is quietly aligning itself with the West. Let me end by suggesting a few ideas for how we respond to this picture. That is to say, declining resources and political solvency at home and a world that is rapidly changing around us. The first, as I said, is we desperately need to get our house in order. If I'm right and the world is going through a tectonic change of the sort that we have not seen for over 200 years, then the United States, which will remain the world's dominant power through this turn, needs to mind the store. It needs to be smart and shrewd and politically uh, agile as we go through this turn. And I think that ultimately means, as I said, restoring the centrism and bipartisanship to American politics that was the hallmark of the system during the last 50, 60 years. And I think that's rooted ultimately in the economic success of the country. One of the key changes that allowed Roosevelt to put together for the first time in American history a bipartisan centrist coalition was the post-war boom. Americans of all class saw their incomes rising. They said, my kids are going to have better lives than I. And that enabled moderation, ideological moderation, to prevail over the ideological cleavages of the New Deal era. And when Roosevelt or Truman or Kennedy or Nixon and even Clinton stood in the center of American politics and looked over his shoulder, there were always a large number of Democrats and Republicans standing there to provide support. Today, when an American president stands in the ideological center and looks over his shoulder, there's no one there. Our political center has been depopulated. And it's not the fault of the Democrats. It's not the fault of the Republicans. It is the fault of both parties. And I think we need to figure out how to reverse that. I think dealing with our economic problems is priority number one, because I think if we restore the economic health of the country, if the middle class feels that tomorrow will be better than today, 
those ideological cleavages will begin to be repaired just like they were in the 1940s. I don't think that that will happen alone. I think it will require government guidance. It will require strategic planning of a sort that we haven't seen, partly because we need to recognize that we are up against major competitors. And when China is practicing state capitalism and building bridges and tunnels and high-speed rail networks, we need to be smarter about how to compete effectively in a globalized economy. We need to figure out what our workers will do if the Chinese are building widgets. We can't then build widgets. We need to build something else, and we need to educate our workforce to do that something else. We haven't figured that out yet, but we must. The second point I would make is that I think that a paced, judicious retrenchment makes the most sense domestically and internationally. Domestically, because I think we have overreached. I think that Americans no longer have confidence in the mission in Afghanistan and a, a sense that Iraq didn't go well. And I think the United States needs to keep its eye on the ball and be careful not to slip in to nation-building exercises that ultimately turn into black holes. And I think Obama was right to so-called lead from behind in Libya and let the Europeans do most of the work. And I think we need to be very careful about again getting involved in trying to save countries from themselves and turn tribal societies into functioning liberal democracies. It's a bridge too far, especially at a time when we don't have the resources to spend. Final point is that I think we need to work hard to, to accept a world in which the American system competes respectfully in the marketplace of ideas with alternative versions of modernity. China may be a liberal democracy, but it's going to take a very long time. China will be a global power long before it is a card-carrying liberal democracy. Keep in mind that England became a constitutional monarchy in 1688, the Glorious Revolution. It became a liberal democracy in 1884, 200 years. Prussia became a constitutional monarchy in 1848 after the revolutions. Germany became a democracy in 1950. And there were a lot of dead Germans between 1848 and 1950. These transitions are painful, slow, and often violent. And so I think we should presume that the world is going to change much more quickly at the global level than it is converged toward a system in which everybody is ready to play by Western rules. And that means to me sitting down with the Chinese, the Indians, the Turks, the Indonesians, the Brazilians, and having a conversation about what those rules will be. What will the next world look like? What standards should be used to decide who's in good standing and who's not? And in many respects, I think the challenge before the United States and the West as a whole is to do for the rest of the world what we did for ourselves several hundred years ago. And that was recognized, number one, that we need to be tolerant of people who have different views about religion, about identity, about nationhood. It was that recognition 
of the acceptability of pluralism that brought peace to Europe after the wars of the Reformation, enshrined in the, in the Treaty of Westphalia. And the second, to understand that the diffusion of power to others can in fact do more to bring stability than instability. Because it was when monarchs realized that it was okay to diffuse power to others that we began to see political pluralism follow religious pluralism. And I think that kind of same principle today, recognizing that not everybody is going to play by our rules, recognizing that we need to share power with other players, is the turn that we need to make in our own, mi own minds to prepare for what is likely to be a, a very diverse world. And I think if we understand that that world is coming, the 21st century may well be one of the most prosperous and stable centuries in history. If we refuse to recognize that we're heading in this direction, then I think we have a very slim chance of actually getting it right. Thank you very much. As, as we like to say here, our group here today enjoyed a session of Foreign Policy 101, but when Charlie Kupchin does it, it's 404. Uh, we're going to have our question and answer session now, and as traditional, to save time to afford the largest number of people uh, the opportunity to ask questions, we take three questions at a time, and these we, we ask for pure questions, no editorializing, and, and he will, we will take the three at a time. Now, also as traditional, our high school visitors, a guest today, uh, provide uh, questions. Uh, it turns out today most of the questions they had provided were answered by, by Charlie in the speech. We have one here, though, that he didn't answer, which was some question. <clears throat> do, do your predicting, uh, does your predicting on the European economy factor in possible advancements in alternative energy? Because if oil became a diminished factor in global economics, would the internet, would the international voice of Europe hold more weight? Okay, uh, question. Well, here, comes a, here comes a microphone here, yeah. Okay. How does, in, in, in your presentation was fabulous, uh, my congratulations. How does the, the concept of the United Nations fit into your uh, prognosis as to the future cooperations between fundamentally different philosophies and, uh, and values? The League of Nations attempted to do what and the United Nations followed to, to, to find a solution which you are proposing, and they have failed. Your comments would be... Thank you, Gerardo. Uh, uh, third question, right. Marty. You spoke of, you spoke of the uh, reduction in uh, foreign service uh, support financially in this country. What role can they play to achieve the goals that you've set out for the 21st century? And could that be used as a as a real public arguing point to reinstate those funds. Okay. On the uh, 
the energy question. Uh, I'm not a, an expert on energy, and there are a, a broad array of positions on this. Uh, I understand that just yesterday at the Tower Center at SMU, there was a speaker uh, whose name I don't know, Berlager or something like that, who, who basically said that we are moving into a, an era in which energy will be readily available and very cheap. And that's because of, of fracking, of tar sands, of all kinds of new sources of fossil fuels that will be coming online. Uh, I don't know. I have to say I'm a little skeptical. <clears throat> and I'm skeptical because if you look at rates of industrialization in countries like China and India, their appetite for fossil fuels is going through the roof. Uh, are we going to be able to, to, to produce new sources? I, I don't know. It's possible. If that does happen, yes, it does kind of begin to change the, the calculations of relative rates of growth, in part because the cost of energy today is certainly a drag on the American economy. Uh, and were energy to be much cheaper, it would help boost growth rates in the United States. Would it fundamentally alter that, the picture that I have portrayed? No. Why? Because everybody would have cheaper energy. And so the Chinese, rather than growing at 7%, would grow at 8.5%. And the United States, rather than growing at 2.2%, would grow at 2.7%. But the relative distribution of power in the world would nonetheless continue to change. The UN, uh, I foresee uh, two somewhat contradictory developments. One is the relegitimation of, of global institutions through their reform. So in the case of the United Nations, that would mean new membership in the Security Council because it's still a Security Council that reflects the 1945 world, not the 2012 world. You've got to get other countries in there. That change has already begun in the, in the World Bank IMF where they're recasting the voting weight. All of that is, in my mind, inevitable, even if politically difficult. But the bigger those institutions get, the more unwieldy they are, especially because as you put your finger on it, the countries at the table will bring very different philosophical and cultural and socioeconomic concerns to the table. And so when the G7 was running the global economy and everyone in that group was an advanced industrialized liberal democracy, it wasn't that hard. You've now got the G20, right? And, and the, it's a much more diverse and unwieldy group. Uh, and so I think you'll get that expansion, you'll get the bigger the bigger uh, groupings, but you'll also get less efficacy. And therefore, I think what we'll see is a, is a reliance on number one, ad hoc groupings, like the contact group for the Balkans, the quartet for the Middle East, this small group that's negotiating today with Iran, the six-party talks with North Koreans. Those are, in some ways, the, the most useful diplomatic venues that we have today. And the other thing I think will happen is that regional institutions will become more and more important. So if I had to guess in 2030, it will not be the UN that is the center of action. 
it will be the EU, the Gulf Cooperation Council in the Persian Gulf, ASEAN in Southeast Asia, Mercosur and UNASUR in South America, the African Union. Because if, in fact, we live in a world in which the West is no longer calling the shots and isn't the provider of last resort, then who is going to provide the public goods? The locals. And that's because, ultimately, you're going to step up to the plate if what's happening affects you. And that means proximity still matters. Foreign service, you know, I, I think that thus far, the Foreign Service has, has dodged the bullet in the sense that the, that the budget declines that we've seen have been modest. And I think that's because Hillary Clinton and others really worked hard in Congress to prevent the chopping block from, from really doing damage. Uh, but I, I think that uh, there will nonetheless be not insignificant cuts and that, and that we, sh we need to get more and more a service foreign service uh, uh, staff into the field. I think we still have too many clustered in Washington and not enough on the ground around the world because they're the ones who will actually know what's going on and can understand the cultural and the political sensitivities. And, and we need more and more of that. Uh, I was just talking with uh, uh, Jim, is that right? Ray. Uh, about, uh, about Dubai and, and George W. Bush coming there in 2007 or 2008 and giving this, this great speech about democracy. Uh, and, and after he left the room, you know, all these sheikhs looked at each other and they said, you know, what's he talking about? <laughs> right? I, is the United Arab Emirates going to be a democracy anytime in the next 500 years? <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, and so, you know, we need to, we need a little bit more uh, reality and a little bit less ideology in dealing with a world that, that, I, that I, I think will be getting more and more complicated and diverse. Thank you. Now, now uh, three more questions. There, okay. I was wondering if you would elaborate a little bit on Turkey and the role of Turkey and what you see happening there, um, and also comment on whether you believe that Europe's, the EU's rejection of Turkey or the divergence of their positions uh, is part of the problem that the EU is now experiencing, or was that inevitable, or is it irrelevant? Okay, Greg? sanctions will have, uh, that sanctions on Iran and on Syria will have in forcing these countries into what we in the West consider to be better citizens? Uh, third question, anybody right there. You haven't really talked about militant Islam which is radically different than Islamist government. Um, I'd be interested in knowing what you thought about the role of militant Islam and um, what, what chances there are 
for actual um, power sharing or not with them. On uh, Turkey, I think there, that there are, there are uh, both lamentable and positive aspects to the change that's taking place in, in Turkey's foreign policy and its domestic politics. The, one of the, the, the casualties is its relationship with Israel, where uh, what was once a, a, a very important strategic relationship is now on the rocks with no sign of it, of it improving anytime soon. Uh, the, the more positive uh, aspect is that I think a Turkey that is less secular is in many respects a better model for the region than the Kemalist military-enforced secularity that, that was in basically running Turkey from the 1920s until about 10 years ago. Uh, and that's because, as, as I said, I think we are moving into a, a Middle East in which there will be more democracy but more political Islam and that Turkey in some respects represents a country that may be well set at integrating those two. Uh, and if you, you know, public opinion poll in Egypt recently, two-thirds of the Egyptian population wants civil law to track the Quran. Right? That's what they want, then that's probably what they will get. But to have a country out there that is figuring out how to combine pluralism and democratic principles with Islam uh, is, is key. And, and I would point out that Israel is facing the same problem. You know, we often talk about Judeo-Christian society here and Islamic society there. In certain respects, Jewish history and culture is much closer to Islam than it is to Christianity, in the sense that Christianity is a religion of faith. Christian, uh, uh, you know, the Pope had political secular power only in alliance with a monarch, a secular ruler. Like Islam, Judaism is a, is a religion of law and faith. And that's why in Israel today, probably the most contentious issue is the relationship between religion and politics. This is something that Israel shares with its neighbors. Uh, Israel, like Turkey, is struggling mightily to figure out how to preserve pluralism and how to preserve democratic respect in a world in which religion is becoming more important simply because the, dem the demographics, right? Orthodox are becoming a larger and larger percentage of the population and have a huge influence on the Knesset because of the way the party system works. Let me touch on militant Islam since it's, it's related. It, you know, I, I think that the, that the more moderate democratic, pluralist brands of Islam exist out there, the less powerful and less alluring militant Islam will be. Militant Islam, I think, was the beneficiary of Saddam Hussein and Mubarak and others who enforced secularity with coercion. And that if you have societies that offer people the ability to to practice their faith and be moderate and be democratic, I think it makes militant Islam 
less alluring. Uh, and in that sense, it will, it will help with, with the problem that we face. Will there continue to be militant Islamists out there? You bet. Will they threaten the United States? Yes. Will we need to continue to fight them? Yes. And you know, apparently Obama decided yesterday to start doing more drone strikes in Yemen. Uh, I think that those are problematic, but they're a hell of a lot more effective at getting at militant Islams, Islamists than invading Iraq. Uh, and I think we should learn from the last decade about how best to fight those people who actually want to do us harm. But I do think that you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and what one could call moderate Islamists are the people that we should be supporting. And the groups that we need to be worried about are the Salafis and other more extreme brands of, of Islam that make a fundamental, I think, uh, break with, with values that, that we hold dear and should defend. On sanctions, I think that uh, you know, Iran and Syria are, are quite different. Uh, and I, I think that the history of sanctions is not a good one in that rarely do they actually succeed in, in coercing, coercing the target state into acquiescence. I think Iran could potentially be an exception in that the United States, I think, has done a pretty good job of making life uncomfortable. And it's been the quiet stuff, the banking system, the SWIFT system. For those of you not familiar, SWIFT is, is, is one of the uh, organizations that, that communicates and allows banks to transfer money among each other. Right? Taking them off that grid is very costly. Will we strangle Iran? No, because the Indians and the Chinese and others are going to continue to buy their oil. Are we at the point of making life sufficiently difficult that we might get a deal? In Baghdad, I think it's conceivable. And I think if that deal is, is in the offing, we should take it. Because if we don't get a deal sometime in the next few months, there will be war, either because Israel bombs Iran or because we bomb Iran. I think when Obama says containment is not an option, you can re reinterpret that is as if they do not compromise, we will bomb them. And so I would say that the chances of a war with Iran are reasonably high if there is not a deal. And on Syria, I just think we have a very long list of very bad options. I would be very reluctant to, to, to countenance direct military intervention. I think uh, that anybody who touches Syria could get burned and dragged into a, a very dangerous situation. And so my rule of thumb, even though it would not be particularly morally uplifting when it comes to Syria, is do no harm. Let this burn itself out. I think Assad's time has come. He will go sooner or later. But let him go because of the natural evolution in, uh, in Syria and not because NATO is, is carrying out airstrikes. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.